thank you, Rick, and thank you so much for coming. Um, as Rick says, uh, this work is, is definitely uh, a work in progress. It, it, it isn't something that I have done a huge amount of work on, so I would be very grateful uh, for any suggestions that people might have uh, as I continue to think about these issues. I, uh, the, a little background to uh, why I wrote the paper out of which I'm speaking uh, today. Um, I began uh, thinking about this issue uh, right after 9-11, and I, I wrote a, a short paper after 9-11 talking about uh, the extent to which the uh, discourse on both sides uh, after the event was framed in gendered terms. Uh, and I noted that gender and religion were used by both sides to reinforce mu uh, mutual hostilities. And then um, a couple of years later, I was invited to a conference honoring uh, the work of Robert Cohane, uh, and I was asked to give a paper at that conference. Um, and uh, I wrote the paper out of which I'm speaking uh, actually for that conference, and it was, it was motivated by, I was looking through uh, Cohane's uh, collection of essays Power and in Power and Governance in a Partially Globalized World, and the final essay in that collection is uh, uh, are some reflections on 9-11. Uh, and uh, Cohane said in that chapter that if we are to understand 9-11 and some of the religious tensions that have occurred since, uh, we need to take religious worldviews more seriously. He went on to chastise the discipline of international relations uh, for the parochialism of its paradigmatic disputes uh, and uh, urged IR scholars to uh, pay more attention to synthesis and less to differentiating their views from others. And so I wrote this paper um, taking worldviews seriously as a, as a challenge. Uh, in the meantime, in the last two years, I've been very busy with other things, uh, particularly the uh, International Studies Association. So I really haven't, I really welcome this opportunity to think about it again, but I do want to stress that it is preliminary and I would be grateful for uh, any suggestions as I think of, because I do want to get back to this and, and, and do some more work in this area. Now, in the, in the piece that I mentioned of Cohane's, um, he advocated a possible theoretical synthesis to think about religion in international relations. And he mentioned uh, classical realism, institutionalism, and constructivism as being possible components of this uh, theoretical synthesis. Um, however, in my response, and what I, I would like to uh, talk about uh, as the sort of major argument of what I'm presenting today, is that I think that this synthesis is much more challenging uh, than Cohane suggested. 
uh, incorporating religious motivations into international relations theory is extremely difficult. And I am talking primarily about uh, conventional theory, primarily uh, rationalist-based theories, of which uh, Cohen is himself an advocate. Uh, and these, this is really what I want to emphasize. Theories that are built upon the epistemological foundations of secular rationalism are not particularly useful for understanding religious motivations or the worldviews of those who themselves express a deep hostility to modernity and to secular thinking. Indeed, the social sciences which have emerged out of, the, out of enlightenment thought are themselves part of the, se the secular rationalist thinking that adherents to conservative religious worldviews attack. I would like to suggest then that religious worldviews may be met better understood using hermeneutic, reflexive, and dialogical methodologies which traditionally are associated with religious studies. Of course, now they are also in associated in international relations theory with non- or post-positivist methodologies, particularly uh, linguistic constructivism and uh, some aspects of feminism about which I will talk a bit more. So my talk today, uh, it will be in four parts. Uh, I'm first going to give some illustrations of the worldviews of those who commit violence in the name of religion. In my paper, I talked about uh, Christian, Islamic, and Jewish groups. I'll talk today a little bit about Christian and Islamic groups. Uh, I find that the similarities are striking. The rhetoric of both Christian and Islamic e extremist groups demonstrates a sense of rootlessness and loss of identity. Each exhibits a deep hostility to secular rationalism, modernity, and globalization. Second, I want to say something about the broader economic and cultural context from which contemporary religious violence is emerging. Albeit in a very extreme and perverted form, perpetrators of religious violence and their supporters emerge out of a more prevalent search for identity and cultural values. An attempt to answer Samuel Huntingdon's question in his uh, new book, Who Are We? Huntingdon has termed this search for identity the most distinctive feature of the post-Cold War world. I also discuss the ideational foundation of contemporary neoconservative religious thinking, which is having an influence on and uh, some support for American foreign policy, although perhaps uh, this may be changing. An ideational foreign policy described, derived from a construction of reality that divides the world into good and evil suggests that ideas are more than a cloak for material interests. Of course, I don't rule out material explanations for foreign policy, but I think it's been quite striking uh, the number of realists who've been critical of our foreign policy 
on the grounds that it is not consistent with our national interests, and by those they often generally are referring to material interests. Third, uh, I will draw on uh, classical realist, and Cohen mentioned classical realism. I will I'm draw on cl uh, classical realist Hans Morgenthau's text, Scientific Man Versus Power Politics, to demonstrate his discomfort with secular rationalism for understanding human motivation. I also draw on a piece by linguistic constructivist Vandorka Kublakova, where she attempts to construct what she calls an international political theology. I find in both these texts something, some useful tools for understanding religious beliefs and quests for meaning and identity, which are so important to those who adhere to conservative religions. In the concluding section, I will draw on some feminist scholarship that is investigating the patriarchal foundations on which these religious worldviews are built. Feminists are also offering some suggestions as, as to how we might conceptualize a different form of rationality that could contribute to providing a synthesis between religious and secular thinking. So first, a little bit on the worldviews of those who commit violence in the name of God. And here I'm drawing on uh, interviews conducted uh, by Mark Jurgensmeyer and Jessica Stern in their books. Individuals who support or commit religious violence see themselves as saints or martyrs striving for a more perfect and a more simplified world. They deplore moral ambiguity and uncertainty and see the world in Manichaean terms. They use militaristic language, frequently from religious text, to describe a world in a perpetual state of war, a battle between good and evil. Worldviews are surprisingly similar, whether they are inside or outside the United States, Christian, Jewish, or Islamic all decry secularism, materialism, and modernity, which create confusion and fear amid a general lack of authority and which are manifest through tolerance of what they call inappropriate sexual behavior and lack of racial hierarchy. Indeed, identity issues are the core of a search for certainty in a world where too much choice seems overwhelming. Material wealth engendered by capitalism leads to moral decadence. Yet motives are material as well as spiritual and emotional. Heavenly rewards are promised to perpetrators of religious violence, but so are material incentives. Extremist religious groups decry international institutions and what they sometimes describe as the new world order led by a secular United States. And I'm talking here about American extremist groups too. Uh, and I have just a few examples. I have more in my paper. Uh, Kerry Noble, one of the former leaders of an American Christian cult based in rural Arkansas, stated that the strength of international institutions promoting world government 
including the United Nations and international banks, are indications that the Antichrist, whose forces also include the IMF and the Council on Foreign Relations, is already here. Leaders of the Pakistani jihad group Army of the Pure told Jessica Stern that the West enslaves Muslim countries through debts to the IMF, the World Bank, foreign aid, and loans. Many of the individuals whom Stern interviewed indicated a sense of wounded masculinity. Indeed, I believe that gender and race are central for understanding the world views of perpetuators, per perpetrators and supporters of religious violence. Almost all who commit violence in the name of religion are men. I, I realize that this is changing somewhat and that we are seeing female suicide bombers, but usually they're, they're more likely to be found in nationalist movements than they are in religious movements. Many express ambivalence toward women, homophobia, and the fears of being marked feminine. Bob Loki, a leader in an extremist anti-abortion group, told Stern that in the United States there is widespread discrimination against the white male. I found it fascinating for our interviews how many of the leaders of the extremist uh, anti-abortion groups in the United States are men and how many of them uh, express a real hatred of women in, in uh, what they say, which is quite interesting. Christian identity groups see the state as emasculating and blame feminists and their non-white co-conspirators for their humiliation. The last will and testament of Muhammad Atta, one of the perpetrators of the 9-11 attack, banned women from his grave lest they pollute it. While the leaders of most extremist religious movements are often middle-aged and affluent, their followers tend to be young males experience economic hardships, unemployment, and social marginalization. Stern claims that the religious violence we face today is not only a response to political and economic grievances, but what she terms in the language of Sartre, a God-shaped whole, where values like tolerance and equal rights for women are irritating those who feel left behind by modernity. While those who are willing to kill in the name of religion are, of course, a very small minority, they represent, albeit in an extreme and perverted form, feelings of alienation and loss of identity that are far more widespread and symptomatic of larger trends. So now I'll turn to my second point, um, some broader implications of uh, this religious war of ideas. Fears about loss of identity are intensifying cultural clashes that reinforce exclusionary international and often racialized boundaries. In the face of what he has famously called a clash of civilizations, Samuel Huntingdon, had suggested the, that the attacks of 9-11 have mobilized America's identity as a Christian nation and that the religious component of their identity has taken on new meaning for Americans. Although often criticized in the academy, 
The popularity of Huntington's Clash of Civilizations in the policy world and in the journalism world signifies that responses to this and other similar attacks would be framed in idealist terms as a civilizational struggle between good and evil. Huntington's clash is mirrored by jihadists with similar world visions. Saeed Khatoub, one of the most influential Islamic thinkers of the 20th century, articulated the Islamic version of the clash as early as the 1960s. The war on terror, one of the central preoccupations of the Bush administration's foreign policy, has been framed in language that strangely parallels that of its adversaries. Gendered and racialized discourses are being used on both sides of the clash to reinforce mutual hostilities. The 2004 presidential election in which each candidate's primary focus was to prove his toughness and ability to provide military leadership in the face of terror demonstrated a form of militarized masculinity that I believe is back in vogue in the United States, particularly since 9-11, although I think maybe this somewhat less so in this election. A Manichaean worldview typical of both sides of the cultural conflict depends on the reassertion of an aggressive form of militarized masculinity. Disillusionment with the secular state is characteristic of all conservative religious groups. However, their relations with actual states are quite complex. Many groups, both Christian and Muslim, are using the state to increase their political influence. This is eroding the boundary between religion and politics, even in secular societies, a phenomenon which I believe has caught international relations scholars by surprise. Modernization theory, popular in the 1950s and 60s, assumed that as newly independent countries began to follow the path to development previously taken by the West, they would become increasingly secular. Industrialization, urbanization, rationalization, modern science and secular values would undermine religious beliefs thought to be left over from tradition. Today, when in many parts of the world, Western values and economic modernization are regarded as culturally alien and a threat to indigenous values, these predictions seem strangely out of place. I, I've been assigning recently uh, Daniel Lerner's uh, The Passing of Traditional Societies to my students, and it really makes quite extraordinary reading at this point in time. Outside the West, the legacy of colonialism and the association of secularism with Western values plays an important role in religion's resurgence. Yet religious beliefs and practices have not declined in those parts of the world deemed modern. While it is low but not declining in Western Europe, the rate of church membership in the United States has increased threefold over the past 150 years. 
In East Europe and Russia, church attendance has risen significantly since the end of the Cold War. And, of course, we also have the resurgence of a rather conservative form of Christianity in in Africa and, uh, of course, ongoing in Latin America. This reemergence of conservative religious movements has challenged the predictions of modernization theory, especially this notion of a sort of progression towards uh, secularism. Their growing influence on the state and politics, even in secular societies, has confounded political analysis that looks to materialist explanations for political behavior. And I think particularly in the United States where uh, people uh, vote so strongly about uh, social issues rather than in terms of their economic interests is is a good indication of this. I believe to understand these trends and their influence on foreign policy, which is increasingly framed in religious terms, uh, requires the IR discipline to pursue some new avenues. And that moves me to my uh, third point, incorporating religion into our theories of international relations. IR theory, particularly in the United States, has been built on ontological foundation of a system of states rather than on social relations among people, an ontology that complicates the incorporation of religion into its theories. I've made this a similar point about uh, sort of trying to fit gender theory in international relations. Gender theory is about theories of social relations, and IR theory uh, is, is generally not. The Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, often termed the origin of the modern state system, signaled the defeat of religion not as a force in politics, but as a scheme for organizing international authority. Westphalia established the right of sovereign authorities to govern religion in their territory as they pleased, thus establishing state sovereignty and the norm of non-intervention. The ontological assumptions of the Westphalian system, and notice a a system, uh, not a society, together with the commitment to, to international relations as a social science, both so central to the evolution of the U.S. discipline, has reinforced IR's neglect of religion and, more importantly, its difficulties in in incorporating religion into its theories. I note that uh, some of the early uh, members of the English school, um, people like Butterfield and White, Uh, The English school is coming out of a much more sociological tradition. We're actually quite interested in in religion. The radical revival of Islam challenges Westphalia's assumptions. The ultimate goal of radical political Islam, and I realize that I'm not here talking about all all of the Middle East, or many parts of the world, but the radical or radical political Islam is the Islamicization of the international political order, replacing the secular state with an Islamic system under God's rule. Support for Islamic movements are both statist and transnational at the same time. Given that the fundamental principles around which the state system is organized are being questioned, 
This presents a profound challenge to IR theory. Secular rationalism is ill-equipped to understand the mixed motivations from the transcendentalist to the materialist, which characterize not only radical Islam, but all the conservative religious movements that I have described. I'll now suggest some avenues taken by IR scholars that can be useful to help us understand this reaction against secular modernity and rationalism that I have described. And I realize that there are many, but I'm just going to uh, pick out two uh, for the sake of this talk. The first example is classical realist Hans Morgenthau's text, Scientific Man versus Power Politics. And I went back and, and looked at this book uh, recently. I always think that Morgenthau still has a lot to tell us, uh, even though uh, uh, it seems like what he said was a long time ago. Um, but in this book, uh, which he wrote in the aftermath of World War II and the demise of European fascism, Morgenthau pointed to a disillusionment with modernity and its association with secular rationalism. A disillusionment which, as I have indicated, is central to contemporary fundamentalist thinking in a variety of religions. And I think this book, uh, for Morgenthau, coming out of the experience of uh, being a European Jew in the 1930s, uh, was was a very personal one in some sense. Morgenthau was strikingly pessimistic about the ability of scientific reasoning to solve social problems, suggesting that man's nature, and he did use the word man, has three dimensions, the biological, the rational, and the spiritual. He concluded that the rationalistic or instrumentalist conceptions of man portrayed by liberal social science, have completely disregarded the emotional and spiritual aspects of life. Disavowing positivism's belief that the social world is subject to the same laws as the natural world, Morgenthau claimed that science may have allowed man to master nature, but it has not answered the reason for man's existence. While scientific man versus power politics is a severe indictment of an attempt to construct a scientific theory of world politics, a scientific model is nevertheless the one to which Morgenthau aspired, although I think he was somewhat ambivalent on this point. For Morgenthau, rationality has the potential to overcome what he saw as dangerous emotions, again, I think, coming out of his own personal experience. Interestingly, his rigid separation of rationality and emotion is itself a product of modern secular reasoning, of which he was critical. And I will return, I just want to return to this point at the end. Scientific man versus power politics is grounded in the interpretive tradition an intellectual approach that is closer to theology and to contemporary IR post-positivist thinking than to realism's subsequent de-evolution to neorealism. My second example is an essay by Vandorka Kublakova, which offers a framework for incorporating religion into IR theory. Arguing for a rule-oriented constructivist approach, 
Kublikova asserts that there is a profound difference between positivist and religious understandings of the world. Indeed, positivist reliance on logic and the positive evidence of the senses, which has devolved into rational choice theory, demonstrates a search for non-religious foundations for secure knowledge. For understanding religious motivation, she advocates a shift to an insider's perspective on knowledge building. Such a perspective characteristic of hermeneutic and post-positive thought more generally has religious antecedents in Romanticism, which originated in the late 18th century as a revolt against modern rationalism. The stress on identity, the inside-outside distinction, phenomenology and hermeneutics, all characteristic of post-positivist thought, has always been central to religious thought and practice. Religions and secular thought start from different ontologies. All religions share a distinction between ordinary and transcendental reality. Religious thinkers see human experience as only one dimension of a multidimensional reality that is ordered by design but is not knowable to sensory perception. A believer must follow the dictates of conscience that are beyond the realm of rational choice. Creating gods is a necessary feature of the human search for identity and transcendence. Kublikova claims that approaching human action through linguistic constructivism as a world created through human action and the meaning that humans give to their actions is a methodological path by which we could incorporate religion into international relations. Kublikova and Morgenthau both claim that fundamental questions about human existence cannot be answered in modern secular scientific terms. Both are searching for a way to understand human motivations which are not adequately explainable in instrumental rationalist terms. Both are helpfully suggestive of some ways in which we need to rethink contemporary knowledge production in order to better understand religious worldviews. I'll now move to my final and concluding point, um, some contributions of feminist writings which can hopefully deepen these analysis and add some further dimensions to the discussion. And this is an area on which uh, I hope uh, to do some more work um, in the future. i get back to it. All conservative religions are deeply patriarchal. Since the leadership of all the major religions has been predominantly male, I think that militaries and uh, religious institutions have been the two predominantly uh, most male institutions in history. Since the leadership of major religions has been predominantly male, religion has frequently served to support patriarchal societal arrangements and the oppression of women. Feminist theologians have offered some important critiques of these patriarchal religious beliefs and practices. They have suggested some reconstructions and revisions of theology, which are not only less patriarchal, but which could also provide the basis for more benign, less conflictual worldviews. 
Certain feminists use a different form of non-instrumental dialogical rationality, which can incorporate both religious and secular beliefs, and which could perhaps provide an epistemological model more amenable to synthesis between religious and secular knowledge. As I've indicated in the first part, gender and race are central to the construction of the religious worldviews that I've described. All conservative religious movements express a frustration with modernity and a desire to return to what they call tradition, which is often defined in terms of returning women to their rightful place, which is generally in the home. Their definition of tradition is rigidly patriarchal, particularly with respect to family relations. Conservative movements that profess to be returning to cultural authenticity do so by enforcing strict codes of behavior on women. Indeed, it is women who generally bear the burdens of culture. Ian Barumer and Avishai Margali claim that the issue of women lies at the heart of what they call Islamic Occidentalism. Most conservative Muslims are advocates of enforcing public morality, which is largely about regulating female behavior. Yet as feminists have pointed out, the nuclear family with its expectations of a male breadwinner and a female who stays at home and does not engage in paid labor is actually a middle-class, modern arrangement. Its origins lie in the Industrial Revolution and the introduction of a division of labor between paid productive labor outside the home and unremunerated reproductive labor inside. Religious movements that advocate a return to tradition are misrepresenting what is meant by tradition. Feminists engaged in the study of religion have offered important critiques of religious worldviews that emerge out of these deeply, deeply patriarchal beliefs and practices. Muslim feminists have claimed that while Islam is being used as an instrument of oppression against Muslim women, this is because it is being interpreted by men to suit their purposes. Islamic feminist Rafat Hassan suggests that there are no Quranic statements which justify the rigid restrictions that have been imposed on women in the name of Islam. When Muslim women fight for their rights, they are frequently accused of betraying their religion and culture and of becoming Western. Indeed, for Islamic feminists, modernity itself is problematic because it is equated with being Western. Rather than rejecting Islam altogether, Islamic feminists are attempting to reconstruct an alternative reading of Islam that does not endorse the disempowerment of women. Christian feminist theology has also engaged in both critical analysis of conventional texts and in a constructive rereading of texts, both of which involve an awareness of, awareness of the ambivalence that these texts have created for women. Feminist theologians, following a practice in feminist methodology more generally, question the assumption that there can be a gender-neutral, universal person who reads a text from an objective point of view. 
a feminist reader of the scripture assumes a reflexive attitude that the gender, race, and socioeconomic status of the reader must be taken into consideration. Feminist theologians also question the selection of canonical texts. A feminist reading of the scripture is not a reading that focuses only on the content of the scripture as authoritative, but a hermeneutic one that emphasizes the interactive process of reading, a process that creates meaning for those who participate in the religious community to which they belong. Christian feminist theologians have drawn inspiration from liberation theology, a radical Christian tradition which emerged in the black, U.S., and Latin American Catholic churches in the 1970s and 1980s. Rather than invoking the authority of texts selected by religious hierarchies, liberation theology involves a form of knowledge building whereby ordinary people come to understand religion through engagement in a dialogical process. Constructing worldviews is reflective, ongoing, and emergent. It is consistent with a sense of empathy and compassion. To feel with, which theologian Karen Armstrong suggests, is as pivotal in all Abrahamic religious traditions as are the belligerent elements and emphasized by fundamentalists. Feminists in both the Islamic and Christian traditions are trying to develop a theology that does not rely on selective readings of texts that claim the authority and certitude of a tradition which is hierarchically ordered and repressive. But they are also striving to develop a theology that gets beyond the problems that modernity, especially modern knowledge, has created for women. While women bear the burdens of enforcement of traditional religious values, which express a deep hostility to modern secularism, women themselves have also had an ambiguous and complicated relationship with modernity and secular rationalism. While modernity has brought many benefits to women, modern conceptions of work and family have been built on structural relationships, such as the division of labor, which I mentioned earlier, that are hierarchical and unequal. Women have rarely been the subjects or producers of knowledge, secular or religious. Modern knowledge with its claims to universality and objectivity has generally been constructed by men from knowledge of men's lives. Modern knowledge depends on the Cartesian separation of intellect and emotion. These are hierarchically ordered and gendered where the mind is associated with men and emotions with women. And where, as Morgenthau claims, as I said earlier, it is the task of reason, uh, read masculine reason, although he didn't say that, to tame uh, dangerous uh, read female emotions. Feminists believe that emotion and intellect are mutually constitutive and sustaining and that emotions can be a positive as well as a negative force. Karen Armstrong claims that since the scientific revolution of the 17th century, 
Even Western theology has been characterized by an inappropriate reliance on reason. Western people began to talk about God as an objective, demonstrable fact. This has reinforced the tendency to impose dogmatic religious beliefs that are causing many of today's conflicts. For certain feminists, rationality is contextual and emergent out of social relations in which the individual is embedded. Building knowledge through an interactive dialogic process, which includes multiple voices, rather than constructing knowledge aimed at discovering some objective universal truth, could provide a useful foundation for the construction of less conflictual worldviews. It could also contribute to building a synthesis between religious and secular thinking. So in conclusion, I have suggested that worldviews of those who commit violence in the name of religion are symptomatic of more general frustrations with secularism and modernity. Therefore, understanding these religious worldviews requires building knowledge that is itself critically reflective of secular rationalism, a form of knowledge that has difficulty understanding religious motivations. Again, to Karen Armstrong, who has suggested that the study of other people's religious beliefs is now no longer merely desirable, but necessary for our very survival. This is a very sobering thought for those of us who are concerned with international security. Thank you. good questions. When you say uh, racial variation, are you meaning that there are not hierarchies or that there are different kinds of hierarchies? Well, both. Uh, I, I would say that in some movements or things... You probably know more about it than I do, but certainly from reading Jessica Stern, she, she did talk about some of the, um, uh, the Islamic movements that do have hierarchies, and they had recruited... Uh, uh, black Africans to do some of the sort of foot soldiering work, but they never progress very much right. up the hierarchy. So it may not be the same hierarchies, but nevertheless, there are those kinds of hierarchies. I would, would you agree with that? I, I don't know very much about it. So well, I, I, I think Stern's uh, perspective is probably correct, though I think discursively, 
Islam has been somewhat different. I mean, mm -hmm. Islam today is certainly akin to 15th century Catholicism, mm -hmm. which sees the world as one and the same. There, there's never been sort of scientific revolution in Islam. Right. Um, I think your question about race theory is a, is a really good one. I, I think, you know, we've sort of got, sort of, I say that advisedly, got gender theory and some recognition in international relations, but race, I think, is just not there. Um, possibly could explain it by international relations lack of interest in the in the South and the global South. I mean, as a discipline, I think that's one reason. I think also international relations as a discipline has been markedly uninterested in subjects like imperialism, um, and that, that might have something to do with it too. It's been very sort of northern statist great power oriented traditionally as a discipline, and I'm sort of really uh, hoping in a way for, for uh, better things. It's not exactly your point, but as president of the ISA, I have initiated some uh, some panels and some thought to having uh, 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 for Chicago next time on race and also incorporating minorities more because there are very few, uh, there are very few, comparatively few minorities in in the field actually, and that I think always makes a difference to what you put in. You know, I mean, there are more women in now, so we've had more more attention to gender. It's it's bad. It's not good. I mean. Yes. Uh, you, talk, you talked a little bit in passing about George Bush and the, the being a conservative. You talked in, about that more as uh, again the sort of religious fanatics, or, you know, however it fits into your uh, way of looking. Maybe can you list some things that Jessica Stern seems to get George Bush really nicely, except <laughs> the evil funds and the neocon funds seem to be very sort of specialized. Except, sorry, the last they seem to be sort of specialized. They, they don't go after all evil, but only evil that focuses on the United States or on Israel. Mm hmm. I think, I, I honestly can't answer that question. I think it's a fascinating one. I just, you know, I'm sure there are people in this room who know a lot more about American foreign policy than I do. I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't believe that it's just a mask. Certainly it, it creates a lot of support for the policy. I mean, uh, but, but, I mean, what, what, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I can't believe that it's just a mask. I mean, I just am not inside the mind of George Bush. I, I don't know whether he's saying these things, whether he really believes this. Or, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff about his his religion and so forth. I would say that I certainly think you need to be a constructivist to try to understand what they're doing. Because, I mean, you know, as I, as I mentioned, and as, of course, you all know, I mean, there have been so many realists who have come out against our foreign policy as not being consistent with, with national interests. So what, what's going on? I, I mean, you know, some people reduce it all to oil, and that's why we do them worry about the Middle East but not North Korea. I honestly don't know because I'm not an expert, but I would love to get some more views on that because... I can't believe it's just a mask. Does he really believe that we're fighting evil? Well, after 9 11, he said his mission was to rid the world of evil. Yes. And, I uh, know. I checked to see if anybody laughed at that. And the only thing I could find was in the editorial of the Times, Picayune, which said um, he perhaps overpromised. 
Well, yes, people people do take it seriously. I mean, we fought, but, but I mean, you know, a lot of support for American foreign policy is by these sort of grand messianic statements. I mean, it was the same in the Cold War. We were fighting evil then, too, right? I mean, as a European, I find this a little, you know, more... I'm not saying that the, the material interests aren't driving American foreign policy, but the appeal to these sort of ideological kind of... Is, seemed much more attractive in, in this country somehow. Yeah? I was wondering how the debate about the influence of the pro-Israeli lobby in the United States fits into your framework of the role of religion and foreign policy as you know, Walt and Mearsheimer framed it, that their infamous article, as I recall, in terms of a critique of realism, because realism would dictate a very different policy mm-hmm. that would be yes. more or less uncritical mm-hmm. of Israel. Mm-hmm. Therefore, extrapolating from that, religion plays a role in distorting um, mm-hmm. national interests. Uh, does that fit into your framework, or is that apart from your framework? In support for Israel arguably is at least in significant measure an issue about the role of religion in foreign policy? Well, I mean, it, it's this variant of the of the previous question. I, I, I'm not really sure that I, I know the answer, but, I mean, Mearsheimer has been one of the strongest critics of, of our Middle East policy, and certainly uh, the support for Israel is driven, has always been driven by something other than materialist interest because we've consistently followed this two-track policy of, you know, wanting the oil, but Israel is the one country that doesn't have the oil. So, I mean, that's been a consistent why why we do it, um, whether it's religion or whether it's support uh, for, the, for the Israeli state. That, that I think, is an interesting question. I don't, I don't really think I have the answer to that. I mean, I, I would be interested to get other people's views because my area is not really... You know, I'm not really a foreign policy person, and I'm, I, I, I sort of, I, I, I tend to look at, at the discourse just to sort of see what, in some sense, it's more the legitimating, but what, in some sense, does appeal, does legitimate, and the, the, that's the sort of questions that I think I'm more interested in: what kinds of cues, symbols, the way gender is used, and so forth. But I'm, I'm not really a insider foreign policy person. Yeah. Another way to take that would be the uh, um, feminist domestic input in this country in the mid-late 1990s relative to the Taliban in Afghanistan. And, and there was a very organized activist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pressure. Feminist put. majority. Yeah. Right. I mean, how mm-hmm. would, that, would that also serve as, a, as an example that would fit with the methodology Mm, I I I don't know. I mean, the feminist majority was was advocating on the behalf of certain women, which I think is is somewhat of a different issue. I mean, they the feminist majority is a is a political organization, not a not an academic one. I mean, I'm more sort of uh, driven by kind of 
questions of epistemology and IR theory, and I mean they, you know, they're a political movement, and they took it upon themselves uh, to uh, promote this issue, which actually got them severely uh, chastised by uh, women from the Middle East, and then of course it got taken up by George Bush, as that was why we were fighting in Afghanistan was for women, which I don't, I don't really believe, but. Um, uh, so they kind of got into trouble from all sides for that. Uh, but I think that's that's sort of a different issue. I mean, that that's a political interest issue, and that's not exactly what I'm what I'm trying to get at. I'm sort of, you know, interested in in the way issues are framed, the sort of frames we use to get people on board for for certain kinds of policies. And you know, when I talk about, you know, the sort of revival of militarism. Masculism. I'm not. I'm not just talking about men. I'm talking about a sort of a way of thinking. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting in this country if you, you know, how how sort of in some sense we sort of revere uh, politicians who have military experience. Uh, sometimes, if you read the press about people like Jimmy Carter, who is a man. Uh, you know, he gets into all kinds of sort of, well, he's wee wimpy. I remember that happened when he uh, went to Haiti and sort of worked out a negotiation with the Haitian generals, which actually ended up sort of averting a crisis for which we had Marines offshore. But somehow the way it was discussed at the time, and I sort of look a lot at these sort of discourses, was very much in terms of, well, he's caving in, he's being weak. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of rather... I mean, obviously there are implications for policy, but I'm sort of more interested in the sort of way we, we frame these issues, and then, of course, that's the way we, we end up doing something about them, is the way we frame them in the first place. That's, does, that, does that make any sense? I mean, I think it was very interesting that we framed 9-11 as, a, as a, an attack, as an act of war, and uh, the previous attack on the World Towers was, was framed as an issue for the justice system. Obviously, the difference was the enormous loss of life, but the previous attack was uh, framed as a criminal act and was prosecuted, that, you know, the, the blind shake. Who was yeah. Um, <clears throat> throughout your talk, you seem to be making an assumption, and maybe something more than that, that conservative religious people um, are motivated by an idealistic or whatever the right term is, but there's a there's a there's a lack of, a, of rationalism in sec, in religious people that that they oppose the rationalism of the secular world and so forth. Um, of course, we're having this big debate about evolution and so forth, and mm -hmm. right in those sorts of terms. Mm -hmm. But in the Islamic world, in, that I know better than the Christian world, um, they go together. The, Interesting. The, the Islamists are really mm -hmm. just a kind of modern people, mm -hmm. mostly. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can find some people who really do hark back to the 7th century mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mostly, the Muslim Brotherhood is a pretty good example. Yeah. The, the members of the Muslim Brotherhood are mostly people with modern education, modern jobs, sometimes pretty high-tech kinds of people, but they also want a religious dimension right. to their lives right. that they think, and they hear the echoes mm -hmm. here, that they think secular humanism mm -hmm. is not provided. And so mm -hmm. they're trying to create mm -hmm. something that combines both for themselves. Yes. But it's not that they are irrational. No. It's not that they are opposed to 
pollution or whatever for the most right. part in their scientific mm -hmm. world right. acceptable. Right, right. But they're adding something mm -hmm. else. Now, the implication of that, if, to the extent to which that is widespread, to me seems to be that we don't have a class of civilization mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in the world, that something else is going on. Mm -hmm. We have to deal with it in I think that's that's very interesting, and I hope to find out more about it. When I when I talk about rationality, I'm sort of talking about uh, instrumental rationality in the terms that you know we're all sort of driven by uh, material interests, and we lack uh, you know any sort of values, spiritual values. And I mean, I think what you're talking about is I, I mean I I need to know more about it. I think it's I think it is. A response, maybe it's not a response because that's where they always thought, to the sort of, in some sense, the, the West has, I mean, it it's obviously upsets a lot of people here too, the extent to which we have moved towards, you know, science uh, answering everything. I mean, all the, or well, I think all the sort of socialist debates in this country are just fueled by people who just feel completely lost, you know, when we can clone human beings and things like that. I mean, it is scary. I think it's it's scary for all of us. And so I'm not really talking about all forms of rationalism. In fact, uh, you know, feminists have a, an idea about rationalism, but it, a sort of reasonableness, a reasonable understanding that we can come to together, I think is a very good uh, definition of rationalism and one which probably fits rather well with what you were saying. I'm talking about this sort of economically driven kind of rationalist determination of human behavior that I think is profoundly upsetting to a lot of people. It, uh, does that make any sense? I'd, I'd like to get some more references about things because I'm very interested in moving on to thinking about dialogues rather than I much prefer to think about dialogues and clashes. So. Sorry, I don't know what you want to feel between yourself and your director. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I could go a little because I would say evangelical Christians are not irrational, nor are most of them anti-women or think that women should stay at home. I, I kind of, it seemed like you're equating radical Islam with Christian right. Maybe you weren't. I mean, that's how it came out. Okay. I was equating certain movements uh, so many of which profess uh, being driven by some kind of religious motivation. I wasn't uh, talking about all of them. And I'm also really objecting to this. Uh, that often happens when I talk about rationality, when people always assume that, okay, the opposite of that is irrationality. That's not... It's not what I'm talking about. I think answering his question gave, you know, a, a, I'm sort of searching for a different way to think about rationality in terms of a sort of discursive understanding, you know, reason and so forth. But church membership is on the rise. I mean, yeah. I mean, just because you don't have a department. Well, that's a state religion. Well, it may be soon again. 
It is. No, it's not. Yeah, no, I don't jump the gun. I'm not sure what you want. You want us to sort of rethink the field of international relations based on what? Uh, 9-11? Seems like, again, it seems like overblown. I mean, would we have had no. Is, is that what I said? Would you have had this given this talk 10 years ago? I mean, prior 9-11, would you have thought that we should have more talk about religion and international relations? Like, what's your, I, I would say that the models that we have are pretty good. They describe most of the way the world, you know, secular rationalism is something we wouldn't want to throw out. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. But I, I don't, I don't work with alternatives, and this is the only way, and this is what I want. I'm making some suggestions here as to answering this challenge as to how we might get a better understanding of some of these worldviews of people who are not necessarily thinking like we are. And I think this whole issue of modernity and people in other uh, cultures, I mean, yes, they want to be modern, but they, no, they don't want to be Western. And there's a lot of literature on this issue of thinking of other forms of modernity, other stories of, uh, that, that people can... I mean, the sort of universal story... Uh, that is sort of generally pushed in, in Western knowledge and international relations is not most people's stories, and most people find it rather alienating. I've been reading some uh, post-colonial histories, and, you know, where does Indian history come from? The British uh, imposed it on India in some sense. I mean, I'm not trying to suggest an alternative. I'm or throwing out all the IR theory we have. I never do that. I get into a lot of trouble from some of my friends for not being like that, but um, I'm just looking for some new ways to be able to conceptualize some problems that don't seem to work very well in the sort of categories we have. And I think that the whole sort of Westphalian way, it's also a very American way of looking at international relations because Europeans are much more kind of sociologically oriented in their approach to uh, talking about world society, the English school, and so forth. And, and so it, it isn't universal. It tells us a lot. It answers a lot of questions. But there are some things that I think we need to think about differently if we're going to have a better understanding of them. I mean, isn't that one of the big problems in the world? If, I mean, aren't, aren't we all sort of some ways by doing international relations normatively committed to making the world a bit more peaceful. I mean, I think we are, and so this is one way in which we can try to begin to understand and appreciate other people's stories and understandings. Yeah? And I'm very, as you know, sympathetic to the interest in identity. But few of the searchers have sought to make sort of identity that these movements seem to be motivated by. But well, I don't read this dialogue in the United States as carefully as I have some of it in the Muslim world. And recently, because of my colleague Alex Stefan, I've gotten dragged into looking a little more at the left behind group here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that while I would agree with you that there are the similarities you point to in these two dialogues, these two discourses, there may be a difference between them that's worth exploring. Mm -hmm. I, I find among many of the Muslim uh, voices the relationship between what they aspire to and the current state system to be very different than among the uh, Christian fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. Christian fundamentalists, you're right, see the global community of the United Nations as the Antichrist. And, and, and the symbolism here is, I mean, it's literal. And the films and the like 
Right. Right. Extraordinarily strong. The UN can do everything. The chosen state is existing, and it's the United States. And it's a very nationalistic religious point that doesn't really, in my view, become universal much beyond America, the instrument of Right. The Islamic tradition, or the, a lot of the right conservatives among religious uh, Islamists are looking for a new caliphate. They can't point to a currently existing state that they think is the fountain of good. Mm -hmm. I see much more as a post-colonial subaltern argument that what they need to do to create authentic independence from this superpower West is to construct a state that would allow them to have political power in this geostrategic state system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is about constructing that state structure. And on, and on this part of the dialogue, I think they're different. Yes, I think that, that's probably true. And so it would it would that probably comes from a very different uh, legacy, you know, of colonialism and not being strong and so forth. Wouldn't you say? I mean, yes, yes, the coming out of a post-colonial. Yes, it might affect how we integrate this into our theorizing mm -hmm. quite differently. One of the mm -hmm. things I suspect Bill is starting to push at this, and I, I, I grew up in the '60s, being sensitized '70s, being sensitized to Orientalism. Mm -hmm. and to the critique of the Western understanding of Islam as exotic, irrational, uh, consumed with religious extremists that was going to eventually be modernized like us. Mm -hmm. And to exaggerate the degree to which religion, meaning the irrational, mm -hmm. feminist if you want, mm -hmm. uh, motivate them unlike mm -hmm. us. That's right, us. that's right, absolutely. And, and so I, I'm, I, I'm a little resisting your your characterization here of so much of the Muslim world's movements as uh, motivated so heavily by, I guess maybe that's also John's question too, motivated so heavily by the non-rational. When I think the debate among experts in the Middle East is really open mm -hmm. over whether or not there are yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that I, I think I've given that impression because actually that wasn't really what I was trying to do. I, I was not really talking about what motivated their, uh, their thinking so much as thinking about sort of mainstream rational choice theories as not being adequate to explain some of these phenomena. Which is, is I, I mean, I'm sorry if that came across, it seems to have from the questions, because that actually wasn't, wasn't what I intended to do. Uh, you know, su suggesting that they were non-rational. And as I've said before, I think there are many different concepts of the meaning of rationality. I think they, I mean, you know so much more about it. I just get the feeling that there is a certain antipathy to sort of, you know, the, the universalism of, of, of Western thought in, in some sense and how we have to think of other no, otherwise, but it, I, I didn't mean it to sound that it was non-rational. I just mean that the sort of categories that, that we use uh, perhaps aren't adequate. Can, can I suggest that maybe the, the issue or the fear that unites Christian conservatives and Muslim conservatives is not so much Western scientific rationalism as 
Western style individual freedom. Mm -hmm. Individual freedom gets you to atomistic societies, it gets you to pornography, mm -hmm. it gets you to legalized prostitution, it gets you to the recognition of homosexual rights. Mm -hmm. and if, if you look at, it seems to me, if you look at something in common to, to those conservative Islamic groups and those conservative Christian groups in the United States, pornography, homosexuality, extreme freedom, um, uh, lack of, of order within society. Right, anything Those goes. Those seem to be the things that are driving people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. now, arguably, they could be rational. Oh, absolutely. I, I... Um, but would you, would you agree with that? The, yes. The freedom? The, I think I so. I find ironic Bush's use of freedom, which is the term he uses mm -hmm. in his public speeches, I think, more than any other term, mm -hmm. as an unproblematic Yes, term. that's very because interesting. Historians know that. I'm a mm -hmm. historian. Mm -hmm. No term is more, is more contingent and complicated and contested in American history than the issue of freedom. Mm -hmm. And so to throw right. that out there as if it's right. a complicated term yes, that I know. we all agree on, I know. both in America and universally, mm -hmm. is amazingly yes. ironic. Freedom is, in fact, I think I think yeah, I would certainly Muhammad agree with Atta, you. Muhammad Atta's buddies who were living in a near the beach in Florida, they frequented a topless bar mm -hmm. uh, on numerous occasions before mm -hmm. the events of 9/11. That's mm -hmm. your definition of freedom. What does that tell you? <laughs> I mean, what does that tell you about the complicated relationship? Yes. Oh, I know. It's very complicated. Available in a yes. That they detest so much, they're willing to kill themselves. Yes, I know. It's fascinating. I know. I, I do think that is a problem. And sort of individualism taken to an extreme lack of community. I mean, I think all, many people are searching for the lack of community. And, and so I think. Yeah. Just real quick, there's one book I thought might be interesting to you called Conquering Hearts and Minds. Actually, it was published by the University of Istanbul. Mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, takes on some of the religious uh, uh, symbolism that's used in in justice, legit legitimation, but also in, um, as well as um, uh, uh, gender. Um, okay. Who who wrote this? Andrew Davison. He's a hermeneutic, actually. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Thank you. As well, I mean, the point he makes in particular is sort of that on the religious side is not just that, um, while clearly the the symbolism of the jihad was used very on in the Bush, the current Bush administration. Then later got switched to some level to this sort of the good bad, the Muslim bad, Muslim one. Mm -hmm. Right. And the good Muslims support the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That if we could, I mean, what I see my work is doing is even to sort of begin to try to understand other other people's points of view. I think, you know, that's such a difficult step for any state uh, to take, you know, to to grant that somebody else sees the world differently, not that we're going to agree with the way they see it, but at least to get to the point where the way they see it is a legitimate way of looking at the world. That's something I learned uh, many years ago from Herbert Kelman, and it's you know something that I think a lot about and strive a lot about in in what I'm I'm trying to do is not I'm not trying to explain everything. I'm just trying to sort of 
understand the validity of other people's uh, positions. Anne, I want to thank you. This was a terrific talk, and I think you stimulated a lot of our thinking. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Anne is going to be here uh, all afternoon. If some of you would like to talk with her, please let us know now. So if we schedule anything for her this afternoon, we can take that into account. I know she's going to see some people shortly, and then I guess is off tomorrow to the ISA Midwest. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me. That was really? Was I? I was worried about it. It's not my usual. Oh, hi, Chad. How nice to see you. It's just great. I've seen you for a long time. It's great to have a president of IR that takes such a broad view and has a lot of questions. <laughs> well, is not certain that their view answers all questions. Thank you. Okay. So, how are you doing? I think I'm doing all right. Good. Uh-huh. Right. I think I saw you in the distance at the ISA last year. Well,